Hey, welcome to the Word Weaver podcast, a place dedicated to the powerful web words weave and the deep layers they uncover. Here you'll find a compilation of tips, tricks, and words of wisdom from writers, authors, creatives, and entrepreneurs. Basically, cool people doing cool things in the world and how they've used words as weapons of mass creation and inspiration. You'll also hear from me, your host, Louise Johnson. I'm a former marketing maven in New York and Switzerland. I left a lucrative job to follow my dream of becoming a writer. It's a never-ending journey, so I figured we should all be in it together. I've learned a lot along the way, but it's a constant evolution. My favorite part is how little by little, letters turn into words, words become sentences, sentences become paragraphs, and before you know it, you've created something from nothing. And whenever that happens in life, it's nothing short of magic. So grab a coffee or a glass of wine, and let's dive into today's chapter. Hello, welcome back to the Word Weaver podcast. You're listening to chapter 20. Today I had the honor of interviewing the insanely talented Jessica Blank. Jessica is a multi-hyphenate author, actor, director, playwright, speaker, and coach on a mission to impact our world through the transformative power of storytelling. As an actor, you might have seen Jessica in CBS's Made in Jersey, where she appeared regularly as the loudmouth big sister. She's also been in HBO's High Maintenance, Blue Bloods, The Mentalist, and Law and Order. Along with her husband, Eric Jensen, Jessica's the author of The Exonerated, a play based on interviews the two conducted with over 40 wrongly convicted death row inmates across the United States. The Exonerated went on to become a New York Times number one play and turned into an award-winning TV movie starring Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover. Living Justice, Jessica and Eric's book on the making of The Exonerated, was published by Simon & Schuster. I spoke to Jessica from her home in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where she lives with her daughter and husband Eric, who continues to be her writing and filmmaking partner. Jessica also teaches a complete storytelling methodology to actors and writers steeped in neuroscience and narrative theory. Jessica recently published her third novel entitled Legacy with Penguin Random House, and her first feature film, Almost Home, premieres this fall. Jessica's second feature film is currently in development with Likely Story, and her new documentary play, which has original music by Grammy winner Steve Earle, is set to be a major off-Broadway production. If that weren't enough to keep her busy, she is also launching several new initiatives as a writing coach and story activist in the upcoming months. Jessica is a resident teacher at NYC's Actors Green Room and a mentor for the Firelight Documentary Lab. She is guest taught at numerous colleges and universities, including Brown, Stanford, Vanderbilt, NYU, The New School, and Northwestern, and she is a frequent speaker and panelist on the arts and social justice. I can't think of a better guest to have on the podcast to talk to us about the power of storytelling. Today, we touch on everything from why talent is a myth the differences between a generative and editorial brain, how to work across multiple narrative forms, the intersection between creative work and activism, and how words can change the world. I had wait with words for a while. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Word Weaver podcast. Thanks for having me. I just want to say that I'm really, really excited to have you on today. All of your the hats that you wear require the art of storytelling. So I really would love to hear from you in your own words, your story of how you got to where you are today. And when did you first know that you wanted to be a storyteller? That's a great question. 
I mean, it was a long, it's been a long process. Like I could go back to sixth grade, you know, I was raised around the arts and I was raised with the belief and the understanding that the arts were a good thing to go into to make a living. And, you know, I could track it back to like sixth grade when I saw my first professional Shakespeare production. Professionally, my entry into story was theater and my entry into story was acting. I mean, I was a theater geek, right? I was like president of the drama club. And I came to, after I went to college, but I've always, I've always been multidisciplinary. I've always been a hyphenate. It's always been the way that my brain works. I started out as a theater major, women's studies minor, but then I wound up transferring and designing my own major. And I was studying theater and I was studying creative writing. And then I was doing a lot of like philosophy and critical theory about like what it means to do those things. So I've always kind of been like this. And then when it was time to get out of school and like grow up and pick a path and be in the world, there was at that point, I think a lot more pressure then than there is now to like, decide the thing you want to be right like yes one thing right and my like I said my entry point was acting I've always loved acting that was my doorway into the magic and power of story and I knew I wanted to do that so I came to New York to study acting and to go to professional acting school and go pro while I was in my first year of acting school in New York I met this guy and he was cute and smart <laughs> and we were going out and I invited him on a date he likes to say that it was early enough in our relationship that he would still say yes to anything I said yep I invited him on a date to death penalty conference so romantic <laughs> <laughs> and he so he said yes because he was very agreeable because we had just started dating we went to this conference on the death penalty at Columbia University. And we were in a workshop at that conference on a group of cases called the Death Row 10, who were all guys in Chicago who had had their confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander named John Burge, who was found to have done that and fired. But these guys were still sitting in prison, some of them with literally no other evidence against them. Mm -hmm. Some of them were on death row. So we heard a lecture about the cases and we saw some sort of 60 minutes style documentary footage and it was all very disturbing, but really on an intellectual level. And then the organizers had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison and they hooked the cell phone up to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was talking to us in the room and telling us his story. The call only lasted a few minutes. He didn't say anything earth shattering. He was just telling us his story. But by the end of the call, everybody in the room was in tears. It was incredibly moving in a way that the last hour or hour and a half of lecture and 60 minute style documentary had not been at all, right? It brought it home, yeah. Eric sort of looked around the room and he was like, okay, this is very moving and I'm in tears too, but kind of BS because we're here at a death penalty conference. Like this room is full of activists and defense attorneys and clergy. And these are all people who are already interested in this story. What do you do to get this kind of experience to people who wouldn't think they'd be interested in the story? Right. He is and was an actor too. He had been in the city working as, a, as an actor for 10 years. And we were both really interested in documentary theater as a medium. I was a big Anna DeVere Smith fangirl and he had crossed paths professionally with Moises Kaufman, who at that time was still 
working on developing the Laramie project. So we were both interested in that form and we actually writing notes back and forth to each other in the classroom in that conversation got the idea for our first play, The Exonerated, which is a documentary play that is based on interviews we conducted with over 40 exonerated death row inmates. So people who were on death row who were then later freed by the state amidst overwhelming evidence of their innocence. That play really made us into professional writers. Like like I said, before we started working on that play, I was still under the impression that you had to pick one thing. And people would actually ask me once the play really took on a life of its own and a lot of extraordinary actors were in it. Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover and Tim Robbins and Richard Dreyfus, And it ran for two years off Broadway and was made into a movie and had this whole life. Amazing. Ask me during that period of time, well, what are you? Are you an actor or are you a writer? But I still felt this pressure at that point also because I was like, the play had established me as a writer and I was still starting out as an actor to say, no, I'm an actor first. But but really to me, the two things are part of the same thing. And now I'm also a director and I'm also a filmmaker and, and, and I've written novels. Like I said, the whole thing to me is, it's actually all one thing. My entry point to it was acting and acting I think is sort of the most magical part of story in a certain way because to me the the magical process of story is the empathic process if we don't walk in the shoes of the main character it wasn't a good movie or a good book or we didn't have a good night at the theater right actor is the location for that empathic identification And so I don't think it's a mistake that that was my entry point, because to me, that's where the juice is about storytelling, is our ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. Absolutely. But then narrative structure and story structure is what enables us, once we're in that other person's shoes, to go on a journey with them. But I love what you said, that you went to this conference with Eric, and it was the idea for the play that wouldn't leave you alone. And you were studying acting at the time. You and Eric took off, traveled across the country to interview these exonerees. I think I read you lived in your car. You didn't have much money, but it was this gut gnawing instinct that, no, this is something we've got to explore this and tell this story, which is amazing because a lot of people ignore that gut feeling. It's a lot easier. It would have been easier for you to stay in New York and keep pursuing acting. What do you think it is about you or about that time that gave you the drive and the confidence and the motivation to keep going over the course, I think it was five years, to create The Exonerated? Well, I'm not sure if it was only one thing, right? Like, I mean, I think I was raised to... (laughs) I'm going to say this in a way that sounds very (laughs) woo-woo. I was raised to listen to my creativity, also to kind of listen to the universe, right? Like, if I'm getting a very very clear information that I'm supposed to do something and that's really important, I will listen to that and I will pay attention to that. The way this idea occurred to us and the sort of incredible synchronicities that came together to support us doing it almost immediately as soon as we took the first step were pretty hard to argue with. It was not just like, oh, here's a cool idea. I really want to do it. It was really like some this play wanted to exist in the world and it grabbed us by the scruff of our necks and it used us. And you kept walking through each door and gra- grabbing each opportunity to make it happen. Yeah, and we kept sort of taking the next right step. And throughout the whole thing, especially at the beginning, we 
you know, we didn't have all of the financing for the travel and advance. And we, you know, we were very scrappy. We were broke, but we kept, we kept, first of all, we asked every single person we knew for help. And that was a really important piece of it. Journalist friends, we said, how do you do an interview? We called, you know, organizer and nonprofit friends and said, how are we going to figure out how to get in touch with these people that we want to talk to and get them to trust us? We called foundation people and said, how do you raise money? We called playwright friends and said, how do you write a play? Like (laughs) literally, right? Like, and we kept doing that. We kept being really comfortable with not knowing what we didn't know, but identifying the questions and then reaching out over and over again to get the answers to those questions. Something that allowed us to take the next right step, we kept taking the next right step. And so part of it was that, part of it was that a lot of things came together to support us when we did that, right? We would always get just enough to keep going. Yep. And then I think also the other piece of it is that once we got out on the road and we started interviewing people, I mean, the people that we were speaking to were unbelievable. I mean, they're extraordinary human beings who have lived through unimaginable circumstances and come out the other side. As a couple of kids who didn't have a track record, the fact that the people who we were speaking to was tr- were trusting us with their stories mm-hmm. was really extraordinary. And as soon as we got that, which happened within the first couple of interviews, we were like, oh, we've been entrusted with a really major responsibility here. We actually must be of service, no matter what comes up on the road to that and because all kinds of things came up for a couple and we were writing together for the first time and collaborating like everything came to the surface but we had this compass of being of service to these extraordinary stories and knowing how important it was that they get out in the world and do the work that they needed to do and so everything was in service of that and so when we would get frustrated or hit a rough point we would sort of we also had each other so we would remind each other of that it worked. It succeeded. I mean, all that hard work, it became a New York Times number one play. You had all of these acclaimed actors involved in it. And it's just amazing what you can accomplish if you just keep going. Yes. I mean, I say this to my clients all the time, right? Because Mm -hmm. people who are newer to the process of writing, and sometimes (laughs) those of us who are further along too, have this idea that it's supposed to just come out amazing. And that if you're good at it, you'll just make something and it will be good. That's not the way it works at all. Like making something that's great is a process of accumulation. You know, every amazing thing that any of us has read or movie that we've watched or anything is like, it's at least the hundredth draft of that thing. The early drafts were bad. Yeah. I talk about this a lot when I'm teaching and coaching. I don't believe in talent. I think that talent is a really actually unhelpful concept. Interesting. A very lazy concept that's used by people who don't actually understand what somebody's doing when they make good work. Right. So they just sort of ascribe it to the artist's talent. Well, they're just talented. They're just innately good. Yeah. Like they just, oh, they just know how to do this magical thing. 
That's an illusion. Yeah. And there are certain things in any given medium that like, if you have them, it makes the work a little easier. Like if you're a musician, it's great if you have perfect pitch. Writing fiction, it's great if you have a natural ear for the rhythm of a sentence. Mm -hmm. Or if you're an actor, it's great if you have, if you're highly sensitive and you have easy access to your whole emotional range, right? Right. A, those things aren't required to make good work. B, a lot of them can be learned. Mm -hmm. And C, it's like those things aren't what make the work. What makes the work is craft. And I'm a big believer that all art forms have a kind of sacred geometry. In other words, a set of underpinning pre-existing structures like music has chords and scales and music theory, right? Those are mathematical structures that are pre-existing that any musician is working with. If you're making paintings, you're working with compositional geometry. It's a pre-existing thing. And in story, I think that underlying sacred geometry or pre-existing form is narrative story structure. And you know, Joseph Campbell, who is an extraordinary anthropologist, and he studied myth, studied all of the myths of all of the world's cultures since the beginning of time, looking, or since the beginning of recorded history, at least, looking for the structures that underlay all of those myths. And he found some. Those story structures are what we're working with as storytellers. So really, when somebody writes a great story, creates a great story, what they're doing is working with that underlying structure skillfully and then own voice and their own authenticity and their own courage and their own truth and specificity into it. If that's truthful and if that's courageous, then it starts to alchemize, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't just know how to write great stories that are magical and powerful and impactful. We learn to do it by working with craft. Absolutely. Getting that fundamental foundation, those elements, and then, like you said, putting your own unique voice and spin on it. Yeah. And that's a lifelong process. hundred percent. Yeah. Many lifetimes long process. I keep myself in a beginner's mind mindset because we're always moving into new forms. So I'm always learning new variations and, you know, not falling into, oh, I did this once, let me repeat it. I think that's good. That's when you fail, when you think you know it all and you have nothing left to learn. That's when you get too comfortable and I don't think you grow or evolve. I'm acutely aware of it because everything I make has a formal, is formally different from anything that I've made before. In that awareness, I mean, I might be acutely aware of it, but I think it's true for any writer, even if you're a writer who just writes novels and your life's work is to write seven novels or what, you know, and I still think those principles of story and the ways that they can combine with any writer's individual voice are so deep and so complex that you can work with them for a lifetime and always be learning and always be evolving as an artist, right? There's no point at which like you just are already brilliant. It's always an exploratory process. My husband actually said that to me very early on in our collaboration. He said, three most beautiful words in the English language next to I love you are I don't know. Oh, I love that. You don't get to create anything unless you're comfortable in that zone of I don't know. Of unknowing. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Actually. I love that. So after the success of your play, that's when you wrote your first novel, Almost Home. 
Well, sort of during what I realized. So this is another concept I work with with my clients a lot. I also, in addition to not believing in talent, I don't believe in writer's block. I mean, I definitely have experienced what people call writer's block, but I don't think of it as a block. What I think is that there are two brains involved in the process of writing, generative brain and editorial brain, and that we need both in the process of making anything, right? Right. The generative brain is the brainstorm. It's the throw ideas against the wall and see what sticks. It's like ideate it over and over, come up with a million possibilities. Don't censor it. Don't decide what's good or bad or what's effective or ineffective, but just like come up with a massive material, right? And Mm -hmm. the real brain is the brain that comes in and starts to sift through and look at this is effective, this is less effective, this part wants more development, this part needs to be cut, oh, what if I put this over here together with that over there, what would that do, et cetera, et cetera. The process of writing is like a dance between those two brains. And all of us as writers are naturally dominant in one or the other. Mm -hmm. And most writer's block comes from being in your comfort zone whether that's generative brain or editorial brain, when it's actually time to use the other one and not knowing how to do that. You can actually self-diagnose pretty simply by looking at when your writer's block comes up. Does it come up at the very beginning? Or are you good at the beginning and you have a big flow and you have like a whole bunch of output and then you get to a certain point and you don't know what to do with it next? And then you get stuck, right? So like generative brain dominant people who aren't working with that consciously usually have a lot of self-talk about how they're like bad at follow through or they can't finish things. Editorial brain dominant people who aren't working with that consciously tend to think they have a lot of trouble starting or don't know how to get ideas. When we were working on the exonerated, I am a, I am an extremely naturally editorially brain dominant. I was going to say, which one are you, more generative or editorial? Editorial brain. Eric and I are a great writing team because he's very generative brain dominant. Oh, perfect. So, but we've both over 17 years writing together started to learn a lot about the other mode from each other too. So now we can both move back and forth with a lot of fluency. But at the beginning, we kind of were what we were. And I was like profoundly editorial brain dominant. Like I didn't know how to make something out of nothing because I would just get like one sentence on the page and then I'd start trying to refine it and make it beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then you just work it to death if you don't have a massive raw material to work with. So with Exonerated, I was very lucky because it was documentary theater. So we had a mass of interview transcripts. So I didn't have to deal with the blank page. Partway through, I realized, oh, we're going to be writers, right? Like where this project is going, we have more stories to tell. This is a thing that I'm going to continue to do. And I recognize I really have trouble with the blank page. I have to teach myself how to write a story. And so I started teaching myself how to write fiction. I chose fiction actually because it was totally outside of entertainment, right? Because it was outside of theater and film and TV, which was the field that I was professionally identifying with and trying to build in. And I didn't really have sort of an ego or career investment in building success for myself in the literary world or getting anything published or anything like that. I was like, I don't care if anybody ever reads these stories. I have permission for them to be totally bad. I'm just trying, I'm using them to try to learn to do a thing that I know I need to learn how to do. 
I started writing short stories and several of them were bad. And then I started getting a little better and, or at least it started feeling better and flowing. And I started writing, I wrote a short story about a girl in Southern California. We were living out there for a little while for work in LA. And I started work on a story about a teenage girl from the desert who ran away to the city. And there was a character that showed up in that story who stuck with me. So it just sort of became this little chain of linked stories about a group of gutter punk homeless teenagers in LA. At a certain point, I took a creative writing class at UCLA. Really, again, like not having any idea whether the stuff was any good or any ego investment in that. But my teacher was like, you know, these, these you should show these to somebody. Like these are, somebody might want to read them. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay, that's cool. And at that point, we were already writing, a, we were writing a book about the making of The Exonerated for Simon & Schuster. Sent this a few stories to my editor. I said, look, I have no idea if these are any good, but if you think they are, would you mind showing them to a couple of agents? And she did, and I got an agent, and the agent called me and said, these are great. I can't sell it as a collection of stories. Can you make it a novel in stories? Like you can keep the multiple narrators, but just give it a through line and a plot. And I said, yes, and turned into my first novel. Amazing. The way you got a literary agent for a lot of people takes years, but your, your journey to get a literary agent and Simon and Schuster to publish, that was a little bit smoother for you because of the success of the play. Do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, the book deal for Living Justice came because our editor came to see the play off Broadway. I said, oh, I think this could be a book. And she took us out to breakfast and asked us to tell the story and asked us to write a book proposal. And then they bought the proposal. You know, it happened in a sort of unusual way. But I, I also think, look, I mean, I work with actors as a coach, too. And I am an actor myself. And actors definitely have to deal with agents and managers and representation even more intense way than writers do. Like as a writer, at least you can make the work completely on your own. You know, the idea that you need representation just happens when you want to get it out in the world. As an actor, the idea that you need representation shows up just to even get the auditions to do your work in the first place. There's not one way that it happens. I mean, I think especially for writers representatives show up when you need them and you don't actually need them before you need them. There's in different ways it can happen. Like there is not just like endless query letters and then finally somebody says, yeah, like it, it can happen that way, but it doesn't have to happen that way at all. Yeah. Now that's why I like hearing your story. It's a little bit of a different journey to publishing, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, you had worked with your husband on the play and then you wrote these short stories, which turned into a novel on your own. Yes. Do you prefer kind of that old adage, two heads are better than one? Or are you more introverted at your core and you enjoyed the process of creating something from nothing alone? I'm like the biggest extrovert on the planet. I've stumbled upon this one, this definition of introversion and extroversion one day, a bunch of years ago, that was really helpful, which is that people always think about it in terms of like, whether you're outgoing or not, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert is about how you recharge. Mm -hmm. Do you get fueled up by spending time by yourself or do you get fueled up by spending time interacting with other people? And that's actually how you know, which was a very useful concept for Eric and I because he's an actor and he's very gregarious and he can be very outgoing, but he actually must be by himself in order to refuel. As we discovered that, it was like, oh, he does great when he has 
four hours by himself in front of the computer working on a script every day. I get burnt out on that after a couple of weeks. It's like once you have sort of some self-knowledge about that stuff, you can adjust accordingly, right? But yeah, I mean, when Eric and I write together, our process has evolved a lot over the years and it's constantly evolving and it's different for every project. But when we're writing something from scratch, in other words, not a documentary piece, because we continue to make documentary plays. But if we're writing something totally starting from the blank page, usually what we do is we start in a room together and we talk through everything. And then we start moving through into the outline stage and I'll put something on paper. So we have something to talk about and we'll talk about it some more. And if we're working with a producer, we do really well often with a, with a producer, a creative producer or an artistic director from a theater who's like a third voice in that process too, to sort of consult with and bounce things off of. Once we finally get to the script stage, we will, we will trade drafts and then keep coming together to talk things through in the interim. So, you know, it's sort of a combination of like, both of us have time alone with the script. And then there's a lot of conversation. For me, that brainstorming stage is way easier for me to do with him because I'm extroverted. With my novels, I will do I give myself a version of that. I'll just do it with the page. I will have an ongoing conversation with myself, a separate <laughs> word document that's not draft about figuring out what the story is, figuring out who the characters are and from there building out the story. And you're not censoring yourself in that document. In fact, if I come to that document with like, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do with this moment, I will write that on the page and then turn it into a question. Like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this moment? Why can't I figure it out? Well, I can't figure it out because this thing isn't clear. Okay, so let me answer that, right? And I will actually create the conversation for myself. But yes, to answer your, so that's a very long version. To answer your question in the short version, I am definitely not the kind of writer that's like wants hours alone a day. If I'm generating a first draft of something, I will do that. Or we call it the bad draft. It's the first step after an outline before we get to the first draft. Generate a lot of material really quickly. I will lock myself in a, in a cabin for like three days and give mm -hmm. my crazy deadline and just churn it out. Love it. That works because it's short term. Like I definitely can't do that every day. Yeah, no, I know. That's I love hearing people's writing routine and how their creative process kind of generates and starts and then builds momentum. You really are a true creative. I mean, you wear a lot of different hats, as we've said, novelist, playwright, director, actor, filmmaker. Do you have a favorite hat that you like to wear? Is there something that fills you up and makes you the happiest? I mean, I really think, like I said before, to me, they're all part of the same thing and they all balance each other out. I love directing because it is of all of those things. It is the one that includes the most different modes of being, mm -hmm. right? As a director, you are kind of performing because you're holding the room, you're creating the space and you're leading and you're talking and everybody's listening to you. Right. So there is a performance aspect to directing. And as a director, you are, especially Usually I'm most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time I'm also directing things that I have written or co-written. You are shaping the story in a very active way. And then 
you know, directing is a good job for extroverts because you interface with all different people. You interface with actors, you interface with your designers, you interface with the theater or with your producer if you're working on a movie, right? So there's a lot of sort of, and and like I said before, I'm a systems thinker. Directing is good for systems thinkers because you're working with all of the sort of connection points between different systems, right? Or actually even designing a system of people. Directing sort of rings a lot of the bells at once for me if I had to choose. But, you know, there's other job descriptions that do that too. Like I would love to be Eric. I would love for Eric and I to run a TV show someday. And I think we would be fantastic at it. It's a sort of more long-term expanded, bigger budget version of directing an indie film that you wrote, which we have all already done and been great at, right? And, you know, there are different job descriptions that also incorporate all of those different modalities. Showrunner is another. But yeah, I mean, basically the answer to that question is like, I want to do all of it. (laughs) I love it. You want to keep going, be multi hyphenate forever, never, never. (laughs) I also like though that you've taken, you have so much knowledge and now you're starting to share this with other people as a speaker and a coach. You're you're not just kind of holding all of this information for yourself. You're actually trying to spread it and expand it in the world, which is amazing. What is like the biggest lesson or is there an aha moment that you've learned that you really try to instill or that you share with storytellers, word weavers, creatives? Yeah. I mean, when I'm working with other writers, so, so I do, I coach in two different worlds. So I work with writers, with all writers who work in character-based story form. So by that, I mean, novels, memoirists and narrative nonfiction writers, playwrights, people creating solo shows, screenwriters, and television writers. Because my methodology, my story structure methodology is grounded in character. Everything is built out from character for me. So that methodology applies to any story form that's grounded in character, right? I also work sharing story tools and coaching on story tools with people who are change makers in the world. So progressive politicians, nonprofit leaders, activist leaders, people who are out front because I really have learned something from working at this intersection of story and social change for 15 years about how story can actually change people's hearts and minds, right? And I think that those are really underutilized tools in a lot of the worlds that I'm talking about, right? Sort of have a mission to bring those storytelling tools that those of us who work in entertainment and in story already have a grasp on to people who are trying to create change and move audiences towards more positive futures. But I think, you know, probably the more relevant piece here is about the work that I'm doing with writers and trying to sort of force multiply as much as I can and share what I know with as many other artists as possible so that more and more stories can get made and out into the world. And, you know, what I'm really teaching is I really, I really teach structure. And I think that that and not in a mathematical sort of formulaic way, but like deep structure. What I was talking about before about story structure as sacred geometry, right? And that like our form actually has its own sacred geometry, just like music has chords and scales. And because I think that that understanding is incredibly freeing for writers, not supposed to just come out good. Oh, there's a vocabulary that I can learn to work with. 
And then if I get my butt in the chair every day or four days a week or whatever, with whatever regularity I can muster, right? (laughs) If I get my butt in the chair and I create a creative habit for myself and I show up with consistency and work with this this set of tools, start learning this vocabulary, I can actually develop fluency with it. Yeah. And that it's not mysterious. The clients that I work with are never sitting their butt in the chair and wondering what they should do next that day. Like there is always a clear next step. And so a lot of what I do also is sort of like, I'm a process person. And so I have structure for the exploratory process. Like I think a lot of writers don't explore enough or develop enough of their story before they start trying to write it in the form they're going to write it in. My process involves a huge amount of character work, a huge amount of story development work, huge amount of generative and imaginary work on the page before you get into pouring it into the structure. A lot of times when you're sitting down, even if you're not ready to like write a scene yet, you still have something concrete that you can sit down at your desk and work out that will bring you towards writing that scene. Exactly. You really talk a lot about empathy, that I think that is a valuable thing for any writer or storyteller to always remember. It's bringing out the empathy in the character. You're trying to get people, like you said, to relate to that medium. That's why I do this whole thing, right? Yeah. Like that is to me I love it. the magic of storytelling is that it is a technology for triggering empathy. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything else that does that. I don't know anything else that does that, that like you, where you can craft it on purpose. Yeah. Right? And so to me, that's why it's what I've devoted my life to is because I want to know everything I can possibly find out about how to do that because we live in a world that really needs more empathy and really needs more connection and really needs more mm-hmm. understanding across difference and needs us to learn to relate to and understand and imagine the lived existence of people who are really different from us. Oh my gosh, yes. So well said. Story does that. Wow. So of all of your accomplishments, you've done so much. What are you the most proud of? Is there one thing, one moment that really stands out or is it all an accumulation? It is all an an accumulation. And then every once in a while, you get a moment where everything comes together in a really incredible way that goes way beyond anything you ever could have imagined. So for me, the, the moment, that moment, and it may it may never be replaced, right? Like this may be actually the high point <laughs> in our creative life was when the exonerated was running off Broadway. Governor George Ryan of Illinois, who was a pro-death penalty Republican, but very concerned about the epidemic of wrongful conviction in his state, was about to leave office. And both candidates, uh, he had declared a moratorium on executions temporarily in Illinois while he studied the problem of wrongful conviction and tried to come up with solutions for it. Candidates running to replace Governor Ryan had said that they were going to lift that moratorium if they were elected and start executions again. Oh, no. And the problems with the system had not been solved yet. 
So Governor Ryan was in a tight spot, and he he announced a few months before he left office that he was considering commuting the sentences of everyone on death row in Illinois to life in prison without parole. Wow. And there was a huge public controversy about that, and people said, you can't treat all of these cases the same. Not all of these people are innocent. Like, you know, you need to give it more thought. And so he... He talked to experts on all sides of the issue, hundreds and hundreds of people in the legal field who work with this issue for a living. And he held hearings on each of the cases and really reached out. And as part of that outreach, we brought the exonerated on a Monday night, an off night in the theater to be performed for the governor in a command performance in Chicago for the governor and about 50 exonerated death row inmates and several members of the Illinois state legislature. Wow. And he watched the play as part of his decision-making process. Oh my God. He did decide to commute the sentences of everyone on Illinois death row and saved about 150 lives by doing that has said publicly that the play was a factor in his decision. We would never claim to take credit for his decision. Like I said, he talked to hundreds of people, many much more knowledgeable than us and people who have devoted their entire lives to this issue. But just the fact that he was able to have the experience, decision-making process, and has said that he was moved by it and that it was an influence on him is something that, you know, I think any artist would be kind of blown away by, right? I mean, it's- Oh, for sure. It was really the moment where I saw, okay, it's not just a hippie Pollyanna pipe dream that art can have an impact on the world. Like this is actually, an exi- it happened in a very, very concrete way where there were actually human lives involved. And to be able to have that experience of like, okay, this is how it works. Like it can actually do something was incredibly powerful for me. You move the needle, whether it was your play, but that's the power of storytelling. It saved 150 lives. And you and Eric were a part of that, which is incredible. It was quite a lesson. It was like, okay, keep doing this. Keep going. Yeah, this is worthy. This is worth it. There were a lot of things much bigger than us that converged and coalesced to be able to create that moment. But it's like, keep doing it because you never know when all of those things are going to converge and coalesce again. Absolutely. Is there anything else in the short term and the long term that you'd like to achieve? So our first feature film just premiered at Woodstock Film Festival. It's called Almost Home. It's based on my novel. Congratulations. That's amazing. I adapted it and directed it together. And so that's on the festival circuit now and, you know, was birthed and is out in the world. And we're working on our second feature, which is an adaptation of a play we wrote called How to Be a Rock Critic. That play itself is adapted from the writing, the entire body of work of the great rock critic Lester Bangs, who Phil Hoffman played him in Almost Famous. He was like the Hunter S. Thompson of rock journalism. He created the genre and was a wild man and a very complicated, fascinating character and a genius. He died of a drug overdose in 1982. So Eric and I spent several years working with his estate and adapting his body of work into a solo show that Eric performs and I direct that was off-Broadway last winter. That got picked up for a film. 
we're in the process of working with Likely Story, which is a production company in New York, adapt it and make the Lester Bangs movie now. The next thing up that we direct on, on the film level, we are also at work on our next documentary play, which is a commission for the public theater based on interviews we did with survivors of and surviving family members of miners who were killed in the 2010 Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia and have almost completed the script based on those interviews. And Steve Earle, the great, amazing country musician, he's a Grammy winner, genius songwriter, is writing original music. We're about to have the workshop where we put the songs into the play for the first time, and I'm directing that too. So that will hopefully be off Broadway within the next year and a half or so. I just had a novel come out in July, my third novel called Legacy. It's a another young adult literary fiction book about a girl in the 90s in the Pacific Northwest who runs away from a bunch of problems at home to join an earth first tree sit in the forest. And then, you know, continuing to work as an actor and audition for TV and work whenever folks hire me, basically. And then... I also have online courses. I'm about to launch a course in a few weeks called From Actor to Creator that's specifically geared towards actors who want to make the leap into creating their own work that I find myself working with in the coaching world specifically because I do both and because I moved from thinking about story as an actor into thinking about story as a storyteller. It's actually not as huge a leap to make as a lot of actors think it will be, but it requires a specific shift in perspective. So I've just created an online course that will help people make that shift and a lot of practical tools. How do you find the time in the day to do all of this stuff? You must be the most organized person. I have one more too. I also have an online course that is geared towards writers specifically that is totally comprehensive. That's my comprehensive character-based story structure methodology. It's 14 modules and takes you from the very beginning of an idea for a novel, memoir, screenplay, TV series, play, solo show, all the way through every step of the process to completion. I'm relaunching that course in January. Those are the things that are sort of next up. And I feel like that character-based story structure online course is probably of particular interest to your listeners because it is really my full methodology of like how you do this thing. Definitely. The experienced writer or you're just starting out and it takes people through all of the steps that I take my private clients through every step in the process. So again, that you're never sitting at your computer with your butt in the chair wondering, what am I supposed to write today? And thinking it's writer's block when really that doesn't exist. Exactly. So, and that course also deals with a lot of like designing a creative habit, dealing with resistance, dealing with blocks, all of that kind of creative productivity stuff that I think is a really important piece of the process too. I'm really badass at time management. Really like my iCal is like Tetris. Everything has a color-coded block. And I schedule everything because it would never happen if I didn't put it in the calendar. You could write it all down in a big to-do list, but if there's no date or schedule to it, it'll never happen. Yeah, and then I just keep my appointments with myself. Break it up into sort of micro-tasks, put those in the calendar, and then keep it like like it's an appointment with somebody else, like it's a meeting. So key to get things done. Lastly, where can we find you online? Is your website the best place to find out and do these courses, buy your books, and just generally, where can we connect with you? I try to keep everything 
all in one place on my website. So my website is jessicacblank.com. There is a Jessica Blank out there who's a graphic designer and she's jessicablank.com. I'm jessicacblank.com. <laughs> That's got all the stuff about my work. You can click through and buy the books. You can buy the plays. It has ways to contact me for speaking. It has a lot of information about my one-on-one coaching and the online courses and all that. And then I also am really active on Instagram. And I run specials on my courses and my coaching sometimes on there. So I'm Jessica C. Blank on Instagram also. Perfect. Thank you so much. You were incredible. It was awesome to chat with you. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's chapter of the Word Weaver podcast. As always, you can find the show notes for today's episode at louiseclairjohnson.com slash podcast. And make sure to follow along on Instagram at wordweaverpodcast. If you like what you heard today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes as it helps more people find out about the Word Weaver podcast. Until next time. I had to wait with words for a while.